Hi, this is Jesse, and I'm here with Red Cloaks Radio with a fantastic guest. Welcome. This is Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for making time. This is a really amazing session. It is historic, and it is busy right now here in almost the end of December. It is indeed very, very busy. And thank you so much for making time to have me come today. We've been counting down the Row Act. We started the podcast when we couldn't easily come down to the state house to meet with legislators and never imagined in July that we would be here in December. Now, a lot has happened in the past couple of days. We had the governor returned his amendments on section 40 of the budget, which was the part of the Row Act that made it forward um, out of both the House and the Senate making an agreement about language that could go forward, which we really appreciate. You have been a fierce supporter and we really appreciate your steadfastness. So he returned it and now a lot of us have been calling and reaching out to representatives and senators asking to please reject the amendment. And I understand there's been some progress today. There has been some progress. So the House is going to be taking up uh, the governor's amendment tomorrow in formal session. So tomorrow being Wednesday the 16th, if this airs after that. Um, but we are looking to reject his amendments, which I think is uh, really the right step. It was really disturbing uh, to see the governor come back and, and amend parts of the Row Act, which I don't need to tell you and people who are listening to this, this bill has been vetted and then vetted and then re-vetted. Um, we've been talking about this since the very beginning of session. Um, I think most members can recite all of the components to you. And then to couple, you know, the, the fact that this bill really has been discussed and aired publicly and within the legislature, we're now in the middle of a pandemic. So the bill was urgent back when it was filed. It's never not been an urgent piece of legislation, but it's become so much more urgent when we have travel restrictions on us. One of the main components of the bill allows uh, people with fatal fetal abnormalities to have a procedure right here in Massachusetts. And the stories about people who have had to travel out of state uh, to get care that they really should have just been able to receive in their own hospital are heartbreaking. But now add to that the fact that you're expected to quarantine and get COVID tests to, to then ask someone to travel out of state really feels ridiculous right now. And so for the governor to veto that section or to, to offer an amendment to that section just seems cruel and certainly not the position of someone who claims to be pro-choice. It was really a surprise to us and we'll, we'll take them apart a little bit. The part about traveling out of state when you're pregnant and you had a wanted pregnancy and you've received devastating news, it's not only, you're not supposed to fly at a certain point in your pregnancy, just it's not safe for you. So asking people to fly at all is very disrespectful. And I know we've probably heard the same, some of the same people between the hearing and some of the rallies that the Road Coalition has put forward. For someone to feel like their state won't take care of them when Massachusetts is known as being an epicenter of high quality healthcare, it just, it doesn't make any sense. 
it no, really doesn't. No, it, it doesn't. And, you know, I, I think it's not only the fact that we're asking people to, to potentially to, to travel by air or by train or however it is that they get there. I mean, we're asking them to go for a relatively short amount of time. But I don't think that most people realize this is not a single day procedure, right? You can't just go down to DC and back. This is four days in most cases. And so to put that sort of burden on people, and also you can't go by yourself, right? You need support. So we're asking both you and your partner, whoever it is that is going to help you to leave the state, to potentially become exposed to COVID in the midst of traveling, which, you know, we're all, the governor's asking all of us to stay home for the holidays, yet apparently traveling out of state for medical care is okay. <laughs> um, it, it's just, it's draconian. It is. And it's really expensive. It's cost prohibitive. And it's it brings us over to look a little bit about the teen situation. We've had this morning a great conversation, which will be out soon, with a woman who does special advocacy work with teens. And part of what we've really understood is that you can place all the laws you want, but if a teenager is pregnant and they need to end the pregnancy and they do not feel safe telling their parent or guardian, or they can't access that person, they have to go to either court or they also have to leave the state. So many teens right now leave the state because they just don't understand the court system or they feel afraid of the courts or they can't figure out how to get there. So we've got the same travel problem during COVID. Um, we really do. And I mean, I represent a district in Western Massachusetts. I live in Northampton. And we are, I, I'm going to say lucky because Connecticut is not that far away and they don't have the same restrictions that we have in Massachusetts. So for us, it's almost hard to find people who are willing to talk about what going through judicial bypasses because everybody travels out of state. Yet, you know, just three weeks ago, it was my best friend's birthday and we wanted to do a three-person socially distanced gathering at a park and she couldn't come to Massachusetts because people from Connecticut are not allowed to travel here and vice versa at the moment, you know, without quarantining and getting tested. So that poses an enormous barrier on a teenager and it, it means that they're going to make unsafe decisions when really the law should be about how do we make sure we're protecting the most vulnerable in our society. When we look at consent, this is another area where the governor just really surprised me. He didn't seem to listen to the thousands of pieces of evidence that Claire Cronin shared. You as legislators have been shown. You've heard lots of stories and received letters and email and postcards. It feels like he hasn't been receiving input or hasn't been paying attention to the same kind of official record because he actually in his statement said something like, um, here he was making a concession by saying only one parent would need to give consent. That's actually the state of the current law. So he was yes. not making a compromise. Help me help me understand that. Am I missing something? No, he was not making a compromise and he wasn't thinking about, you know, worst case scenario. So in a case of incest, you're going to have one parent give consent, really? I mean, that it doesn't make sense. And I agree. It sounds like he wasn't paying attention to any of the advocacy and shame on him because he's an elected official. That's his job to listen to the advocacy. And I have shoeboxes full of postcards and letters and, and outreach about the ROAC. So I can't 
believe that the governor has not received that level of outreach. What I think is really happening right now, though, is not that the governor doesn't know what's going on. The governor is trying to play politics with something as important as reproductive health care. And it's unfortunate. I mean, I think, you know, we were at a moment uh, where we have really important national elections going on. I say at a moment because even though the presidential and House elections are over, we still have a race in Georgia. There's uh, really tense negotiations going on between the House and Senate over relief packages, which should be at the forefront of the governor's mind. And yet, even though he is a Republican and campaigned for many of those Republican senators, he doesn't seem to be willing to push back. And this is some sort of uh, way to, I don't know, placate probably Republican donors in this state by showing that he can stand up to those pro-choice people. Now, he's many times indicated that he himself is pro-choice. He's certainly accepted the endorsement of pro-choice organizations, but I think this action proves who he really is, quite honestly, because there is no one who can sleep at night having filed the amendments he just filed and really in their heart feel like they are a pro-choice individual. So well said. And I think for a lot of us looking at our legislators, it's been a situation where people really can't hide. It's wonderful that you ended up taking the vote the way you did because everyone can look up exactly how their elected officials voted. So you have people in there who are, um, I know there's a couple of your colleagues say that they are Democrats, but they were adamantly opposed to the Roe Act. Um, and then you have people who were really silent during this long protracted session. And it was not really clear where they stood. They just kind of avoided it. And one way or the other, they had to take a vote. I know one person actually, um, voted present, I guess. And so I guess that one person did not end up taking a stand, but it's kind of clear if you're not with us here, you're, you're opposed. So that is helpful. I will say the Roe Act has been challenging for some colleagues because while they are, um, while they claim to be pro-choice, they are pro-choice when it is first trimester, medication, abortion, everybody is over the age of 18. Um, but they they get a little bit more concerned when we're talking about later term abortion. And, and I guess the, the, the to be fair part is the national media has done nothing to help people understand what that even means. I mean, the fact that we have this uh, this this idea of late term abortion and, and we don't say it's you know it's later in the pregnancy but we're not talking about um, infanticide which is what many of the right keep trying to call this we're not talking about you know someone who wakes up uh, three days before delivery and says you know what I think I've changed my mind here that's never been what this is about that's not actually reality and so it gets really hard when you have these incendiary comments made in the national media by candidates for president, people who then become president, it, it does give people pause unless they do their research. And there are elected officials, unfortunately, who are scared to have hard conversa conversations with their constituents. There are people who don't want to answer the emails where um, the constituent says, you know what, I'm pro-choice, but I think this bill goes too far. I've gotten a lot of those emails um, not, not a lot, but I, I've gotten more than a handful of emails from people who've said, I think this bill goes a little bit too far. And I've had to say, well, I, I don't think it does. And this is why. Like, do you understand that this bill is talking about fetal fetal abnormalities? And oftentimes they don't because they've heard the rhetoric or they've seen a Facebook ad or they've seen something else. I would hope that the governor of Massachusetts, however, would be able to move beyond that and to make decisions based on facts. 
facts are really what we need more than ever. We need clear statements of facts, science, understanding what medical conditions are. And as we go forward, we're hopefully this does move forward. We'll go over the procedural steps here. Hopefully in the coming session, there will be legislation that really does help work on education that allows younger people to understand how the human body works, what human sexuality is, how people get pregnant, what happens during a pregnancy. There are certainly adults who do not have that knowledge because they weren't taught. And when you have a taboo about talking about sexuality, certainly a taboo about talking about abortion for some religions, it's not easy as a culture. Hopefully this two year conversation has helped break the ice for future conversations. As people look at the procedure right here, if you meet tomorrow, then you need, as I understand it, a simple majority vote and you can reject those amendments and then send it back to the governor. Then what happens? I imagine, although I, I don't have a crystal ball, I wish I did. I imagine that given, given the fact that the governor has further amended the bill, he will decide to then veto the section. Now, the governor has 10 days to act after he receives what I believe will be our rejection tomorrow. Um, after he vetoes, we have to override that veto, which I believe we will be able to do. We do have a veto-proof majority on this in the House. No, but the governor has has uh, vetoed and over and uh, I'm sorry, amended many things in this budget that are going to require action by the legislature. So I think you're going to see us meeting pretty frequently, or at least I hope, fingers crossed, pretty frequently in the coming days so that we can address those issues. But the good news is that we are uh, in time to actually make sure that this is done before the end of session, which is now January 5th. It's going to make me laugh when I write my new email to Governor Baker and say, please veto quickly. I mean, I'd rather you pass it, but if you're going to veto it, please act now so that we can respond and, and, and have this not have the clock run out. That seems like the right. only danger we would have is if he drags it out. But it sounds like if you do it tomorrow, we will be within that 10 day, 10 day. We'll, we'll be fine. Yes. I mean, if we do it tomorrow, that's the 16th. If he waits until the very last day to veto, that's the 26th. And then we just have to come back to override. His clock runs out after that. But this was a very sneaky move on his part uh, to, to amend rather than to just outright veto. And I think he's going to try to say, well, it's because, you know, in my heart, I am pro-choice. But I, I think it is really up to the people of Massachusetts to push back against that right now and say, you know what? This was not the time, this was not the place, this was not the year. I mean, after we've lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court and we witnessed the horror show that was four years of President Trump, this was not the time to play politics with, uh, with reproductive rights. No, exactly. And I think the work that you are doing right now to try to keep people alive who are suffering during the pandemic. So let's switch our focus there for a moment because in this broader umbrella, of healthcare and public health, we have this gigantic, gigantic, frightening, devastating pandemic happening. So yesterday, the country crossed 300,000 people who have died. A lot of lives have been lost in Massachusetts and many more lives have been impacted. And so, you know, one of, we have several red cloaks who are healthcare providers and people who are nurses and they are going now into the second, third, you know, mini surge and it's, it's frightening. It's really frightening and the vaccines are just coming out. So in the legislature, you have other things that you're working on in the budget. Baker hasn't shown complete support within the budget for the kind of things that would help us during a pandemic. 
Right. And there, I mean, some of the things have been really shocking to me. So I'll, I'll just list a couple. Um, he has vetoed and or amended all of the language around housing. Um, so that's raft funding. That's the money that prevents people from going through eviction and foreclosure. Really at the time when the CDC moratorium ends. So even though that didn't provide the enormous protections that the in-state eviction foreclosure moratorium offered, it did offer some modicum of protection. So to veto the language, the actual money that's supposed to be getting in the hands of people to keep them housed during a pandemic seems um, really, really uh, heartless, quite honestly. Um, in addition to that, he also vetoed the section of the budget that deals with early childhood education. And I don't think there's a corner of the state that has not felt the effects of the early childhood education sector being affected, whether it means people not being able to get to work because they haven't had a place for their children to go, whether it means insufficient testing at those facilities, um, whether it just means providers trying to figure out how they're going to make money with reduced classroom sizes and um, harder time finding staff, you know, any sort of veto or lack of support for that sector feels really terrible. And it, it does, in a strange way, tie back to Roe, um, not that only women have abortions um, by any stretch, but the Roe Act certainly affects uh, women to a great extent, as does early childhood education. And we've seen women leaving the workforce in absolute record numbers during this pandemic. And so to veto that section was, again, um, really a questionable move at this point. Um, but the list goes on, higher education, um, the RTAs, public transportation, buses that people need to get to work, um, community colleges, uh, you know, we, we could keep going and going because there, there are so many things that he's decided to, uh, to eliminate in the budget. Um, I think one of the other things that's really disturbing is he wants K through 12 funding to be issued through grants as opposed to the traditional formula. I am very concerned that he wants to do that so that he can prioritize schools that have gone back to in-person learning in-person learning is, you know, wonderful. We all want to get back to in-person learning, but we want to do it safely where our kids feel safe, our teachers feel safe. I don't think we can stress how important it is that workers need to feel safe during this pandemic. And, you know, again, most of our teachers are women. Right. And many of them have children or relatives or spouses who they help take care of. So they both are concerned about the risk of exposure for themselves that they would bring home to their family or or their kid's school isn't offering the same kind of support. And then you have people who have children who have severe special needs and yes. staying at home by yourself with, with your child with severe needs is very difficult. Yes. It, it's like, it's a very big system and it feels like as an observer, it feels like the governor is level not familiar with the daily workings of a range of people's families maybe he's used to a family that has the means to hire help or staff or something is going on because the budget reaction that he's given doesn't reflect most people who are of modest means who are trying to get through this pandemic and they are trying to work or if they can't get out of the house then they're trying to do their part by staying home most teachers will say they're doing their part but they really didn't choose to be in a frontline position they didn't choose to be a nurse or a doctor. They chose to be in a school setting, which they did not ever imagine would be a public health risk. 
Right. And, and, you know, even those who are not in person, they didn't choose to become online educators either or technical experts trying to troubleshoot issues with Zoom on a daily basis. I have nothing but respect for our teachers right now. I do not know how they're doing it, especially my daughter's band teacher who is somehow coaching band via Zoom. Really just just bless her because... <laughs> That is, it's incredible. People are rising to the occasion and that is a bright spot. You as a legislator have been amazing. I've got to know you through watching you on social media. The fact that our legislature has continued to meet and said you would take up legislation that was really essential and you have done that, it's very meaningful. It's not missed by constituents because we know you also can't just run into the state house now so easily and you're still getting it done. You've made some major leaps into the virtual space and it's greatly appreciated. Uh, we would love to get to have you back on. This conversation can continue into the next session. What are a couple things if you want listeners to know that we, you're looking forward to working on in the next session? Because not every important piece of legislation was able to move forward in this unusual circumstance. Of course. Yeah, I have several pieces of legislation that I'm, I'm hoping to work on that are um, that I filed this session that I'm hoping to continue to push forward rather. Um, so one of the big pieces that I hope after the Roe Act passes, we can start to focus on is a piece of legislation that would allow for medication abortions to be available at public college campuses with an opt in for community colleges and private colleges. California did this already, but I think with the pandemic, we've seen enormous leaps uh, first in telehealth and then in no-touch procedures, which make this really an affordable, important step for universities. There are not clinics in every part of the state, and there are certainly not easily accessible clinics. And so when we talk about a college student uh, getting on a bus for four hours, and it's two trips, it's not just one, because you do have to go two different days, I mean, that really makes healthcare inaccessible. And while I said earlier, no one you know wakes up three days before delivery and decides they're going to have an abortion, people do end up waiting seven, eight weeks, and it, because of cost and also because of access. And once you pass a certain mark, you, you no longer have the medication abortion as a possibility. The costs go up, even though most health insurance in Massachusetts covers abortion, not all does. And so this would be a, a way of just making a little bit more access available in the state. And I'm really excited to start those conversations. We've been working with partners in California and Massachusetts to figure out how we get this bill moving. We will love to follow up because it is it gives people access who need it desperately. When you're in your young which is the age most people are in college, many, many people still do not have a regular period. They're not aware that they've missed their period right. because it's not settled into a pattern. I mean, for some women that lasts a lifetime. So right. the idea that, you know, everyone in their young 20s is going to be able to catch it very quickly is not helpful when you're setting policy. Oh. And we're talking about places that already, you know, for the most part, offer Plan B. They offer reproductive health care services on campus. So we're talking about adding two pills to that equation. It's wonderful. It's really going to be a big step forward. The last thing I want to ask about is one of the most important, and it we cannot do it justice right now, but we know that police reform has also had an enormous amount of tension. It's very different than the Roe Act in the sense that the Roe Act came out in January 2019. It was introduced right in the beginning of the session, and the landscape has changed only in that RBG died and there was a new Supreme Court 
appointment. But the general hostility from anti-choice people is pretty clear, and that was embedded in the initial language. On the other hand, the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd really brought to the forefront the police brutality issues. And so that is one that you guys have done an enormous amount of deliberating on here at the end, and the governor has also sent back. So if you have any um, points you would like listeners to hear, we would love to know what's on your mind. Sure. The, I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the Police Reform Act, and I, I say that with a grain of salt because I do know that the majority of my constituents think that the bill did not go far enough. And what I've tried to explain to them is, you know, we're, we're trying to take up legislation that writes, in essence, 400 years of wrongs, and we're not going to get that. We're not going to do that in one bill, and we're not going to get it right on the first try. And I think it's really important, though, that we start and that we take a bite at this apple and that we keep coming back. And what I, I hope we will do is that we will use a racial justice lens for all legislation that we pass in the future. I mean, I think that is the ideal scenario, but getting this bill across the finish line is really important right now. And I think for people who are listening, who are worried about the bill, you know, we're not in the same position as the Roe Act. We don't have a veto-proof majority in the House. We had 40 Democrats who voted against the bill. So we are going to be in a position where we'll have to negotiate with the governor um, if that's at all possible. We may have to accept the governor's amendments, which I think is disappointing. And at the same time, we need to pass something and we need to not give up. Um, I think the only way I'm going to be convinced differently is if somebody says, hey, in the next session, we're going to be able to pass an even stronger bill, but we're not going to have a different governor in the next session. Um, we're not going to have, really have different members in the next session. Um, and so I, I think, you know, this is, we're going to all have to accept this is the first step and get this bill done um, because it would really it would be so unfair to everybody who has lost their lives to not do something. Well said, well said, because it is devastating to think about how we remain incredibly, incredibly immersed uh, in deep in a society that has systemic racism everywhere. Systemic sexism, systemic racism. If you were a black woman, woman of color, indigenous woman, you were, you were held back on all sides by our laws and by our culture. So the steps forward are necessary. And, and with the Roe Act too, I know many of the Red Cloaks, myself included, wanted to see even more change, wanted to see parental consent gone because it, it's- Oh, I agree. <laughs> completely inappropriate, but, yes. but there's an acceptance that this is, this is what we can do in two years where we can bring people with us and that we've got to just keep coming back. So thank you, thank you so much. And we will look forward to having you back. I really appreciate your spending the time today. Thank you.